Thank you, Brad. Um, see, I'm sneaky, Brad. I'm like a ninja. Well, good morning. Thanks for uh, braving the storm to make it out here today. Um, like only in Wyoming can this be, I was sunburned coaching a soccer game yesterday and blown away and drilled with snow this morning on the way here. That's, that's Wyoming. We didn't get that in California very often, but... Um, as you can tell, Chad's not here. Chad went back to visit his family in um, West Virginia. And uh, fitting in baseball season that we think of having a pinch hitter. You know why the pinch hitter is the pinch hitter, right? Because he doesn't hit very well, so he doesn't start. So just bear with me as we go through this. Um, Chad has asked me to talk about the subject of baptism this morning. Um, and so we're not going to be expositing a a long uh, section of scripture like we would normally do. It's going to be very much like a lesson that I would have received in my New Testament theology class at the Master's College back when I was, well, younger. Back when I didn't have to have glasses in my pocket just in case. But, um, and so this morning we're going to take a look at, at uh, baptism. You know, and it's fitting after celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ last weekend at Easter, that we should take a look at his command that he gave to his disciples some 50 days later when he ascended into heaven. But before we do that, I want to share an article with you on an online news service. Um, this online news service is... Uh, if you're familiar with The Onion, it is Christian satire, and it's called The Babylon Bee. It's probably pretty sacrilegious for me to even show it to you, but uh, if you need a good laugh on a regular basis, The Babylon Bee is the place to go. It is hilarious. And so, in keeping with our subject this morning, baptism, here was a recent article in The Babylon Bee. Local Baptist careful to fully immerse, not sprinkle, not pour, but fully immerse Chick-fil-A nuggets in honey mustard sauce. Um, they had another one that I thought about adding. I don't know if you're a fan of Chick-fil-A. I'm pretty sure it is a gift of God, and you can ask my soccer players whenever we're in Cheyenne. We eat there as much as possible. Um, but anyway, this, this is a, a pretty good side, and it's kind of fun. This morning, um, our text is... What we often call the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And so if you'd please stand as we con continue Chad's, um, his deal about standing during the Word of God and in honor of the Word of God. It's actually uh, something that I always wanted to do and I didn't want to be that guy um, because we had a guy in college that would do this. So um, it's, it's kind of awesome. So Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You may be seated. So I, I've been kind of raised in this expository. For those of you that, that aren't familiar with that term, 
to exposit scriptures, to take a chunk and to go through it meticulously. And so I've been raised in that tradition. It's very hard for me to do anything other than that. So I'm still going to have to do a little here. And so I just want to take a look at this real quick. Um, I, I want you to notice the bookends of the Great Commission. It starts with Jesus saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been granted to me. Man, what an incredible statement that is, that our risen king has all authority. Not some authority, not most authority, but all authority. What an incredible statement that is. And then the very last book in, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What an incredible assurance that is to us that the risen king who has all authority is with us always. What an incredible statement for us to take faith in. And then Jesus says this. He says, go and make disciples. And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ, you have the hope of the gospel. You have the hope of the gospel. If you know Jesus, you have hope. And the events of this last week demonstrate the need for the hope that Christ delivered to us through his death and resurrection. From the Easter Sunday attacks in Sri Lanka, last Sunday on the international scene, to the attack in the Jewish synagogue yesterday in San Diego, California, here in our own country, to even the events of the, the last week here in Sheridan. The world is full of people that need the hope of the gospel. And we have it. If you're a believer, you have the hope. Are you making disciples? Are you going? Are you sharing the gospel? If you're here this morning and you're struggling still, like many of us are with the tragedy of this last week, uh, I would encourage you to come forward at the end of the service. I'm going to ask some of the elders to remain. And if you would like prayer um, for that and to help um, deal with that and to um, continue to be in prayer for that family and the bus driver and all those involved as Brad prayed during our prayer, I would encourage you to come forward. So elders, if you're here and I forget, just remember to come forward for me if you would. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we have hope. And I know that sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ can seem daunting. I don't know why that is, but I know that it does for us. But we have hope and we have a world that needs hope. I encourage you not to wait for someone else to share the hope. You have been commanded to do that and you've been equipped to do that. The Lord Jesus Christ has given us our marching orders. We are to make disciples. And incidentally, the command to make disciples applies to all believers. It does not apply to a building and an office where we call a church. The church is us. It applies to us. Jesus did not say, go hand out tracts. Jesus did not say, give money to your missions committee and call it good. Not that, that obviously giving to missions is a bad thing. It's an awesome thing. Compassion International, awesome. 
But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said to us to go and make disciples. Jesus told his disciples that he had ministered to, that he'd lived with day in and day out for three years, go and do what I just did. See, I would suggest to you that you are the one that has the best opportunity to share the gospel with people that are in your life. Discipleship is a process that requires investment in the lives of others. And I would ask you this question, who is most able to invest in the lives of your coworkers, for example? Is it you or is it the church? I would suggest that it's you. If you are not going and making disciples, if that's something you don't feel like doing, you have to ask yourself why you ignored the command that Jesus Christ gave to us when he left. That is what we are called to do, to go and make disciples. I want to share with you, you saw this if you were here last week. Um, Chad did a great job of, of talking about how a person is saved. And I want to put this up for you again to see. It's called the Romans Road. Um, it's very simple. It's good for you to remember. Um, feel free to jot it down or look it up online later. But Romans 3.23, beginning of the Romans Road, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 23 of chapter 6, because we've sinned, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in chapter 5, verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Philippians tells us he humbled himself. Christ died for us. Can you, I mean, I still at times wonder if I'm even able to wrap my mind around the idea that Christ died for us. That God would become man for us. That he would humble himself. And then in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10 and 13 says this, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so this morning we come to the subject today. The command is to go make disciples. Along with that command, if you go back to the text, uh, are two participles that modify the command. The command is to make disciples. The modifying words are then to baptize and to teach in obedience. And this morning's subject, of course, is baptism. And so we want to start today by taking a look at what is baptism. Well, first and foremost, um, baptism is a command from our Lord, right? We're told to do that. We are told to be baptized, and we're told to baptize disciples. 
But there are three interpretations of baptism that we want to look at this morning. One of which we hold here at First Baptist Church and one that I believe is taught scripturally. The first one, which the Bible does not teach, very clearly the Bible does not teach, is that you are saved through baptism. And that idea is called baptismal regeneration. We'll come back to that here momentarily. But the Bible explicitly explicitly says that salvation is not a process of works. Baptism does not lead to salvation. And that is abundantly clear in Scripture. The second, this is held by our Reformed friends, people like Presbyterians, for example, they hold to the idea that baptism is a sign and a seal of the covenant, much like circumcision was in the Old Testament. Because of this, that leads to them baptizing infants. And again, we'll deal with that. And then lastly, in terms of main views on baptism, we have the Anabaptist view. The view that we hold as a Baptist church. Uh, and the view that I believe is very clearly scriptural. And that is the idea that baptism is an act of obedience that symbolizes Christ's work on the cross for us. And so we'll go through that here today. So we'll start with this idea of baptismal regeneration. And you'll notice the title on the screen here for this. What baptism is not. Clearly what baptism is not. Baptismal regeneration is the idea, again, that baptism gives salvation. And abundantly clear in Scripture that this is not the case. Baptism does not lead to salvation. Many who, are, uh, who, who believe this idea point to this verse in Acts 2. On Pentecost, Peter is preaching to people who've gathered. And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, that sounds a lot like baptism leads to salvation, doesn't it? But this fails to take on the full context and the full counsel of Scripture. In fact... In the very uh, three verses later, we actually see that Acts tells us that those who received the word, the idea of receiving the word is the idea throughout all of Scripture of being saved. So we see here the process of salvation and then baptism. And it says on that day, 3,000 souls were added to the church. The very next chapter... In chapter 3, the same guy, Peter, the apostle, preaching at Solomon's portico. Again, preaching to people who very recently were a part of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Peter says, repent. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. In this case, he doesn't mention baptism at all. And in fact, throughout the rest of Scripture, we see very clear signs, particularly in Acts, where people are saved and then they're baptized. And I think the most convincing is Acts 10. 
In Acts 10, verse 47, says this, Can anyone withhold waters for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? Well, if they've received the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? It means they're saved. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized. You see, baptism does not lead to salvation, period. Baptism does not lead to salvation. If they have the Holy Spirit, they're saved. Interestingly, in Acts 8, um, verse 9 to 24, I don't have it on the screen if you want to write that down. Acts 8, 9 to 24. We come across the story of Simon the Magician. And Simon the Magician, it says, is believed and is believed and is baptized. But we actually find from the end of that passage that Simon's not saved. Simon asked Peter if he could pay for the power of the Holy Spirit. It's very clear that Simon is not saved. The Holy Spirit comes with salvation. And so we come to this passage, 1 Peter 3.21. Again, people who subscribe to baptismal regeneration suggest that this passage is evidence that this uh, is how you're saved, or at least is part of how you're saved. 1 Peter 3.21 says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Well, that sounds obvious, right? Again, ignoring the full context of the passage and the full counsel of God's word. The very next part of it says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. That phrase refers to salvation. It refers to the forgiveness of sin. Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, but not because it forgives sin. It doesn't lead to that at all, but rather as an appeal to God for a good conscience. What does that mean? That means because we're obedient, which is exactly believer's baptism. At least 60 times, at least 60 times in Scripture, we see examples of a call for repentance and belief in Jesus Christ with no mention of baptism at all. So this idea that the two are somehow joined seems hard to imagine that if that is in fact the case, that you must be baptized to be saved, as our Catholic friends and our Lutheran friends believe, uh, it seems like perhaps Scripture would actually identify that regularly. And I mentioned Catholics. Catholics literally believe that salvation comes through baptism. Well, if you believe that, you have to baptize infants, don't you? I mean, why would you not? That, by the way, that phrase, infant baptism, theologians call pedo-baptism, if you hear me say that later. Uh, but they believe that you must be baptized to be saved. Lutherans also believe this. Lutherans, though, struggle. Martin Luther himself defined the idea of sola fide, which is justification by grace through faith. And yet, when it came to baptism, he couldn't shake the Catholic tradition that he was trying to break free from. 
In fact, this is what Lutherans teach, that infants should be baptized and may possess unconscious faith or the faith of their parents. And I would ask you, where do you see unconscious faith or faith of parents in Scripture? But they're trying to work through this idea, of course, of being saved by grace through faith. You see, the idea that you are saved through baptism denies the very concept of the Reformation. It denies justification by grace through faith. This is a key principle of the Reformation. It is a key principle taught by Paul and all of the New Testament epistles. And it is the, the idea that we are saved by faith alone, not by works. In fact, Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by what? Not faith and baptism, but by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 slams this door shut. Because baptism is a work. It's something that you have to do. And Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Not a result of works like baptism so that no one may boast. See, this is key to understanding salvation. It is by grace through faith and not works that we are saved. So, I'm not going to spend any more time on this idea of baptismal regeneration. Uh, it's not there. An interesting thing for you to look at, if, you, if you'd like to look further, read what Paul says. Uh, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, 14 through 17, where he says that he didn't baptize and that he was not commissioned to baptize, that he was commissioned to preach the word of Christ. Seems that if baptism were a part of salvation, Christ would have also added that to his commission. So the second idea is the Reformed view of baptism, that it is a sign and a seal of the covenant. And I have to confess to you, uh, I've never understood infant baptism. It never made sense to me. Of course, that probably has to do with the fact that I was raised in a Baptist church, if we're honest, right? Having said that, um, I think I am guilty of, of just dismissing the argument. Uh, I spent some time as I was preparing for this studying infant baptism from a guy I really, really respect, a guy by the name of R.C. Sproul. Many of you have heard of R.C. Sproul. Just a solid, solid preacher of God's word. And I'm here to tell you that I'm pretty sure that uh, R.C. Sproul forgot more than I'll ever learn or know. And uh, he is a sound expositor of God's word. And so there are some incredible men of faith who hold the view that baptism is a sign or a seal of the covenant. And so I encourage you, like I had to be reminded in my studies, to approach this with humility and with the understanding 
that these guys are, have been pretty brilliant throughout the, the age of the church. When we look at guys, for example, like John Calvin, look at guys like R.C. Sproul, Sinclair Ferguson, and so on. Many of you listen to these guys on the radio regularly, and you, you, know, you think very highly of their preaching. So I just want to remind you that we need to always approach these issues with tremendous humility. Um, unlike baptismal regeneration that is clearly, clearly wrong, in this case, I can get the argument. I think it's wrong. I don't agree with R.C. Sproul. Luckily, I don't ever have to debate him. Uh, but, uh, but I will tell you, uh, I will tell you that I think the Bible teaches um, that, that he's wrong. But again, he's forgotten more than I know. So, um, By the way, if you're interested, uh, there's a guy named John MacArthur. You've heard of him before. He is what we call a credo-baptist. That's, that's what we would be, people who are baptized based on belief. And then you have R.C. Sproul, who is a pedo-baptist. In other words, somebody who believes in infant baptism. They had a debate um, that is online. Uh, it's, you can find it on YouTube, the audio of it. It is fascinating. And it led to, for me, uh, an incredible understanding of infant baptism, um, which I still don't agree with, but it's worth listening to. So the basic idea for the Reformed, for the John Calvin, for the R.C. Sproul, is that baptism has replaced circumcision just as Jesus Christ has replaced the law. The idea is that in the Old Testament, God prescribed circumcision for all who were part of the covenant. In the New Testament, they say then that anyone who's a part of the covenant should then be baptized. And so an important point is that those that are reformed believe in believer's baptism. If you're saved as a part of, uh, later in life as a part of, for example, a Presbyterian church, they will practice believer's baptism. However, because they liken it to circumcision, they also believe in infant baptism. Okay, this idea of pedo-baptism. Uh, it is, in many ways, an appeal to history. It is an appeal to what the church has done since the third century. Now, you might be noticing a gap there. Right? Did you get the gap? It's an appeal to what the church has done since the third century. Since a little over 200 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For 200 years, the church did not practice infant baptism. There's not a single example of infant baptism in Scripture. Not one. There are, they say, uh, there are several examples where households were baptized. And they say, see, that, that's probably infant baptism. Well, they could say infant baptism, but I could say, no, they're 24-year-olds who still live with mom. Because <laughs> Scripture does not tell us this. So pretty clearly, pretty clearly, the Bible never talks about infant baptism. By the way, that also means that there's no prohibition of infant baptism. 
Okay, so I want to make that clear. And if you listen to these guys like R.C. Sproul, they will tell you that because there's no prohibition, they can then do it. Of course, there is a command to believe and be baptized, and I think that's where the issue is. Romans 2, though, I think handles this. Romans 2, verses 28 and 29 says this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. In other words, racially, ethnically. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But yet it would seem outward and physical, right? But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And then we see in Colossians 2, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. See, Paul's point here is that the framework for which circumcision was the symbol has passed away. The new framework is the framework of salvation in Jesus Christ. And the symbol of that new framework, like the symbol of the old framework, not the evidence of the framework, but the symbol of the old framework was circumcision. The symbol of the new framework is baptism. Furthermore, I would suggest to you that if what R.C. Sproul and others suggest, John Calvin, guys like that, if what they suggest were true, consider for a moment Acts 15. Just quickly, I'll go through what Acts 15 says. Acts 15 says that, that um, there was question whether or not Gentile converts to Christianity should be circumcised. And so they took this issue to the Jerusalem Council, the kind of the elders of the early church. And in that decision, they decided, no, absolutely not. New believers who are Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. It would seem that if baptism was replacing circumcision, that that would be a really important time for somebody to say it. And yet we have no record of that at all in Scripture. Furthermore, I would suggest to you that the idea of baptism replacing circumcision and infant baptism leads to confusion within the church. Who's saved? Calvin, Sproul, these guys will tell you that if you get baptized that, as an infant, that doesn't mean that you're saved. Just like if you got circumcised, it doesn't mean that you had faith in God. So who in the church is saved if everyone has been baptized? The early church does not or did not teach baptism either. Robert Sousey, in his book, The Church and God's Program, said this, In summary, the historical evidence reveals a considerable time between the New Testament writings and the first reference to infant baptism, a gap which is difficult to account for if it was established, if it was in the established practice from the apostolic time forward. 
The fact that many references to baptism occur during this period make it doubly hard to explain the absence of references to infant baptism. So we here at First Baptist Church, we do not believe in infant baptism. We believe in believer's baptism. And I think it's a good time for us to talk about then what we believe. And by the way, we believe this because Scripture teaches these things, as I'll show you here momentarily. But first of all, we believe that, that baptism is an outward sign of inward change. It is an outward sign of inward change. Second, we believe that baptism is a form of obedience. As we started this morning, we are called to be baptized as we become disciples of Christ. So it's a form of early obedience for us. Third, it is a public testimony that you are affiliated with Christ when you get baptized. Fourth, it is also identification with the church. And we'll get into that here momentarily. This is what uh, many call credo-baptism. It comes from the Anabaptists. The word or the prefix Anna means re. So the Anabaptists were people during the Reformation who re-baptized. All these uh, kids had been, all these people had been baptized in the Catholic Church as babies. They believed before that they had been saved. And now as they discover truth in God's scripture through the Reformation, there's a belief that they needed to be re-baptized. Credo-baptism, as it's called, is the idea that the work of Christ on the cross was the fulfillment of, of God's promise to save. And baptism reflects participation in this completed promise. And, you know, in fact, Jesus modeled it for us. In Matthew 3, verses 13 to 15, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Can you imagine baptizing Jesus? Especially when you knew who Jesus was. John says, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him and said, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And John consented. See, baptism is an outward sign of inward change. It is death to the old life and resurrection to the new life in Christ. And you see in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? A new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And perhaps if you've seen a baptism service, you've heard a pastor um, finish the baptism of a person and say to them, walk in newness of life. That actually comes from this passage in Romans 6, uh, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of his Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, it's an outward sign of inward change. It is also a form of obedience. And I won't read this whole section out of John 14, but Jesus is pretty clear how he feels about obedience. In fact, he's 
crystal clear. He says this, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Uh, in a little bit, we'll talk about what if I'm a believer and I'm not baptized? Well, if you are a believer, you're saying that you love Jesus. John 14, Jesus says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, it is a form of obedience. Thirdly, it is a public testimony. It is identification with, with Christ and with his church. You know, in today's age, identifying with Christ is really not so troublesome. We worry about baking cakes, you know, like in Denver, right? That that may cause a problem. But consider what it must have been like in the early church. When you were baptized, like the 3,000 were, 50 days after Jesus was crucified? I mean, that's a bold statement. See, it is a statement to the world that you have identified with Jesus Christ. And that's a very heavy calling, but it is also identification with the church. These next three passages you're familiar with. It is the idea of unity, one body. We are one body of believers. You see that in 1 Corinthians 12. You see it in Romans 12. But look at Ephesians 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one what? Baptism. Baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See, being baptized is also being affiliated with the church. It is a public declaration that we have joined that body. We also believe then in this idea, or we do believe then in this idea of believer's baptism. There's a very familiar refrain throughout Scripture. First, the hearing of the gospel. Second, the response to the gospel through repentance and belief. And then finally, baptism. This model is seen throughout Scripture. Hear the gospel, respond to the gospel, and be baptized. It is what we are called to do. It is exactly what Christ Jesus says in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. In fact, every baptism that we see in the New Testament is believer's baptism. We don't see a single case of infant's baptism, as we mentioned earlier. Every single time, it is believer's baptism. And so, we come to this thought. Salsi says this. He says that God uses this act to confirm the realities of salvation. The faith of the individual is strengthened as it is openly expressed and the saving acts of salvation are sealed and ratified with additional force to the heart of the believer. See, we believe that baptism is important because it is a powerful symbol of the work of the resurrected Christ. It is a powerful symbol of the believer as being washed clean. It's a powerful symbol of the believer as a new creature. It is a humble act of obedience in response to what Christ did for us on the cross. It is a powerful testimony to others, both inside and outside the church. 
God uses baptism as a monument, a memorial, a memorial to our salvation, a touchstone to the work of regeneration that was accomplished by Christ on the cross. And so we come finally to what's the correct mode. This is probably the, uh, we ought to be careful here, we're Baptists, right? So we believe in immersion. And by the way, we should. That's literally what the word means. The word literally means immersion. But I think the Dadash says this well. Um, when it talks about pouring, for example, it says this, but concerning baptism, thus shall ye baptize, having first recited all these things, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in living water, as in running. Should be cold here in Wyoming. But if thou hast not living water, then baptize in other water. And if thou art not able in cold, this is the earliest writing, that one of the earliest writings we have from the, uh, from the early church. We should be baptizing in cold water. Get rid of that hot stuff. <laughs> All right. Um, so, if you can't find cold, then in warm. But if you have neither, then pour water on the head, thrice in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, clearly, the early church preferred immersion. The word means immersion. It actually is a word used to, to mean sink a ship or to dip, to die something. So it literally is immersion. Uh, some say pouring is appropriate. I don't guess I have a problem with that. But it's not what the Bible calls for. The Bible calls for immersion. Um, sprinkling was used in the early church for those that were too infirm to get out of bed. Okay, so do I think that's possible, that that's okay? Yeah, that I'm, I'm not going to clasp this thing tightly with my hand, even though we're Baptists. But clearly, the Bible teaches immersion. When Jesus was baptized by John, Mark and Matthew tell us that he came up out of the water. That does not indicate sprinkling. In Acts, when the Ethiopian eunuch was going to be baptized, he saw a body of water, and he wanted to go into it to be baptized. There were pools around Jerusalem that were likely where the 3,000 were baptized. Finally, the Greek has words for pouring and sprinkling that are not used. So the early church did it. It best represents the idea of Christ being buried and risen again. Immersion is clearly what is intended. Now, do I think that the gates of heaven are barred to somebody who was poured or sprinkled? Somebody who was baptized maybe in the Sahara Desert? Obviously not, because we know that baptism is not what carries salvation. So I come to this little idea of so what? So what? Why do we care? Why do we even talk about baptism? John MacArthur came up with these five reasons people in church don't get baptized. He says, number one, people are many times uneducated on baptism. They don't know what it is and why they should do it. Number two, he says, some uh, are prideful. They've been disobedient for a long period in their life by not getting baptized. And uh, they don't want to show that off. 
to everybody in the church. He suggests that three, some are indifferent. It's just not a big deal to them to do what Christ commands. Four, he says, some might be defiant. Baptism lives in opposition to how they live their life. They might be hypocrites. And then five, if they're not saved, they don't have the Holy Spirit pushing them to obedience. Sousey says that a lack of baptism in the church hurts the church. He says this. He says, it can only be neglected, or it can be neglected only with impoverishment of the church. F.F. Bruce says that the idea of an unbaptized Christian in the early church is simply not entertained in the New Testament. And yet we have many people in the church in America today who claim to be believers and yet have not been baptized. And so we end with this this morning. Now what? If this is you, we pray that you would consider baptism. If you've not been baptized as a believer, we encourage you to do that. Why? Because Christ commanded that we do that. It's not something that we should take lightly. It's not an archaic thing that looks weird. You think, man, he's going to drop me in the pool. That, that would be my fear, by the way. Thank you, Sam. Sam sent me a video of that when he found out what I was preaching on, so that was good. Um, but if you're not baptized, we pray that you would consider that. Uh, if it's something that you're interested in, our church does some classes, and then, uh, and then we have a baptism service, which is a way for us to rejoice with you that you are choosing to follow Christ in obedience. Uh, it's, we've talked about all that baptism means. We would encourage you to get a hold of the church office if you're interested in being baptized. And I would leave you with these thoughts. Luke eleven twenty eight. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Please consider being baptized if you're not. Let's pray.